I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to the FOSS podcast. My guests today are filmmaking duo and virtual reality rock stars, Felix Lajeunesse and Paul Raphael. I've had the pleasure of knowing Felix and Paul since the early days of their VR company, and I've always considered them one of the very first to open my eyes to the unique potential of virtual reality as an art form. The two began their collaboration as young filmmakers in Montreal, and their passion for cinema played a major role in their nascent interest in virtual reality. They founded their company, Felix and Paul Studios, in 2013, combining their patent-pending technology platform with award-winning creative expertise to produce cinematic VR and groundbreaking immersive experiences. Their Emmy award-winning studio has become the go-to place for such notable collaborators as Barack and Michelle Obama, Wes Anderson, LeBron James, Google, Samsung, and NASA. Yes, they've brought us virtually to space. Their Oculus VR series, called Space Explorers, the ISS Experience, is as breathtaking as it is groundbreaking. The multi-platform immersive production is created with hundreds of hours of footage filmed by astronauts aboard the International Space Station and gives the audience the out-of-this-world experience of being in space alongside the crew. Recently, Felix and Paul Studios launched a multi-sensory and immersive VR experience of it called The Infinite, which is traveling to different venues across North America. I am so excited to have my friends Felix and Paul here to join me for the last episode of the year. Felix and Paul, I am so excited to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here, Charlie. It's so exciting for me because you're the two gentlemen who first exposed me to virtual reality. I remember when you came to my office years ago and you brought this VR headset and, and the whole computer and you put it on me and all of a sudden I was in this experience called Strangers, sitting there watching Patrick Watson, the musician, at his piano, composing a song. And I was just transported into his studio. I forgot where I was. I was just there with him and his dog and the music, and I just had this incredible sense of being someplace else and, and no longer in my office. I remember at one point turning and accidentally hitting my elbow on the conference room table and being surprised that there was this table there because there wasn't one in Patrick's studio. You know, Paul and I have been working together for more than 15 years now. So Paul is almost like a brother. We literally, you know, grew up together, um, you know, in our professional life. Um, and we directed music videos together. We directed, you know, documentaries and then commercials. And then we started to look into fiction and directing fiction together. And we were known as Felix and Paul, the two directors from Montreal. And the, the common passion that we had as we were working on all of these projects, you know, was to explore the world of experiential cinema. And I'm not saying experimental, but really experiential. And 
as we were two guys thinking about these things and, and pushing each other to try to, you know, experiment with things and, and test out new ideas, um, we started to explore 3D cinema. And we started to look at how we could use 3D cinema not so much to create, you know, big spectacles, action films and stuff like that, but really to create a sense of immersion. What does it feel to be for like four minutes um, in front of someone inside of a treaty film where you can just watch a person, you know, like really going back to the basics, like the very first experiments that we did in treaty cinema was putting a camera and looking at people, you know, very, very, very simply, and then sitting down in front of a 3D television and looking at that and seeing how over time, after like two minutes, when you stop wondering about, okay, what's going to happen? What's the next scene? What's the next, you know, big moment here? Like, because we have all of those anticipations, right, that comes from watching television and films for so long and expecting narrative. So we, we, we thought if we move narrative out of the way to start with and just look at the pure experience of watching a, tr a person in 3D, how does that feel like? And then we realized that that was actually quite powerful. And that was years before we did VR. So we were fascinated by that. I'll ask Paul to continue the story there. This 3D cinema we were doing, we were already treating it uh, more of as an installation art rather than than cinema, and and the way what we did, which really segues into VR, I think quite amazingly, is we were creating these installations where we were basically locking down all the variables of uh, capture and playback, so that you wouldn't, you know, when you watch a 3D film in a theater or at home, if anyone still does that, you know, you don't control the size of the screen. You don't control where people are, are, are sitting. Uh, and it creates a film with volume, with uh, relief, right? But it's not a replication of reality. And, 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 and what we were really interested in is, well, how, how can we create this transparency of the screen? How can we turn the screen into a window into another world? And by locking down these variables, such as the screen, the size of the screen, the position of the viewer, relatively small sweet spots, so relatively small crowds, the screen literally became, became a window into another reality. And uh, it really, it, what it was, was narrow field of view VR. Um, of course, when the uh, Oculus uh, DK1 uh, was... Uh, came out, there were only really uh, tech demos, a few games, and uh, th there was no such thing as, as, as uh, live action uh, in, in VR. We did a lot of tests, uh, you know, kind of built upon those initial rigs we had designed for our cinematic installations, and eventually got a working prototype of a very first scene uh, that was of a, a woman sitting next to you in a church. That was the first thing we actually started showing uh, before we recorded Strangers with Patrick Watson. And that was like a 20 or 40 second loop, something like that. There were, I think there were, there were various versions and that we started showing around. You know, whatever effect the, 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 the films we were making had, this was like on another level. People were like crying. People were having these quasi-spiritual experiences watching this woman just sit next to them and at some point look, look, look you in the eye. And we were just as blown away as everyone else because, you know, you know as artists, you know, we were always, like Felix said, uh, interested in, in, experience, in experiential storytelling, but why, right? Because ultimately, storytelling 
is about the effect that it has on someone, right? It's the the, the medium itself and the format is really just a a vehicle towards an, a, an effect, right? We dropped everything we were doing and 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 put all our investments into expanding on this this small demo. Okay, so that was an incredible epiphany for you of the power of this medium, even when there was almost no storytelling going on. And then you decided to go and create this longer piece with the musician Patrick Watson and just sort of record him playing in his in his loft uh, in Montreal. It's an amazing piece because in a way it seems so simple. I mean, there's really not a lot going on. There's no narrative really. What I think you were after and what everyone sort of responded to with Stranger was this idea that you had a sense of presence, right? That you felt like you were in that room with him instead of in your living room or in a cinema watching something, you were no longer separated from the action. You were, you were there. Tell me about your, your, how you thought about capturing this idea of presence in VR. I, I must start by saying that for us, the concept of presence isn't born, or, or this idea of presence and, and cultivating presence through a media experience isn't born through VR. It's born through the work that we did before in 3D cinema and, and just the, the, the experience of just watching a person. And again, I put that emphasis because, um, you know, a, a filmmaker that I really like once told me something that, that really blew my mind. He told me, um, how often in life did you allow yourself to look at someone for five straight minutes? Like, how often did you do that? And I thought about it and I said, well, Maybe never, you know, including with my own kids. Did I ever look at my own kids for five straight minutes? And I realized that I had never done that in my life. And I told him that. And he said, well, well, that's, that's something you should try. And if you can't do it, you know, with your naked eyes, do it with a camera and see the result of that, you know. And I, I was always fascinated by, by that thought. It was about being with another person inside of a space, whether that space is a studio, in the case of Patrick Watson in Montreal, writing music for his new album, or, you know, in the Mongolian steppes to capture a moment with a nomadic family. For instance, um, the first ever time we met with Colin Trevorrow, who uh, has directed the, uh, you know, new Jurassic World movies and, and produces all of them, we met with him and he watched strangers and we were, you know, in his office in Hollywood. And he said, can you do that with a dinosaur? And we said, <laughs> yes. And then we, we set out to create the, the, the dinosaur version of strangers in the world of Jurassic, because we, we told him at the time, look, we don't exactly know yet what this medium can do from a storytelling standpoint, but we know that if we create a single moment where you're um, with a dinosaur and you're, you know, it's a continuous moment and you're just experiencing it as if it was really happening and it's unbroken, just like reality is unbroken, uninterrupted, you know, we know that that's going to be powerful and affecting for audiences. Well, it's true. When was the last time you sat and spent five minutes just looking at a dinosaur? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever do that? So, um, so, so that's what we set out to do. It was this one shot, you know, you have this dinosaur that is sleeping and gradually, very slowly, the dinosaur wakes up 
And then the dinosaur starts smelling around and then smells you and then very slowly approaches you. And then it comes and it, it, it smells you and then it becomes distracted by something. Then it eats some leaves in the tree and then eventually it goes back to sleep. And that's all it is. And it's a continuous, almost five minute experience. And eventually we had to figure out, okay, we have to make that a little more complex. We have to start utilizing presence to tell narrative stories and we need we need to take that leap you know and that's that was like a, another big i guess turning point in our journey i just want to spend a second more on this idea of presence and whether you think that that is another way of saying the suspension of disbelief you know that's something that that people who create big movies want to have happen right they want their audiences to forget they're in the cinema to uh, forget that some things maybe don't make sense in this world and just go along with the story to get lost in the, in the adventure, if you will. And I wonder, when you talk about presence, I, I think of it that way, that it's a little bit of this getting people to forget where they are in, in real life and to give in to or suspend disbelief and to give in to being in the world of the VR film that you're making. Is that is that what you were trying to do? Is is there a, is that another term for this in VR? You know, presence. Another way of saying that. So, I think they're they're related, but they are different, especially when it comes to, to virtual reality or, or immersive storytelling. Suspension of disbelief implies something is not true, right? Storytelling in other mediums, like more older mediums like film and, and, and literature have evolved over decades and centuries, if not more, s such ways to do that, right? Ways to suspend this belief. And these are, this is trickery, much like a magician, you know, sleight of hand, sleight of narrative, sleight of storytelling uh, to trick you into believing something that is not really actually happening, even if it was real, right? Even if it was a documentary or, you know, you're actually not watching that real thing when you're watching any sort of medium that is uh, that has captured it, so we were we were uh, ultra concerned with that. We couldn't just bring the the tricks of storytelling uh, directly into virtual reality, uh, for example. Why are those things different? I think that uh, to come back to your your original question, of suspension of disbelief and uh, presence. I think that immersive storytelling, and in this case, virtual reality, has a specific kind of presence that other mediums, such as immersive theater, definitely have presence. Uh, film has a form of presence which is more abstracted. It's more rem further removed than the type of presence, I believe, is in virtual reality and in something like immersive theater. You could certain a great film will certainly make you. It will, will, you'll be invested in the story and the characters. You may forget you're watching a movie, but the configuration of the medium keeps you physically, in quotes, uh, apart from the piece, right? In a way that I mean, some films kind of do that a bit more than others. But you know, if if there was a, a baseline, then that baseline just starts way lower in terms of presence with a, a, a medium like uh, filmmaking, in, in our opinion. And 
virtual reality, you, you just start, you can lose it very easily, right? Especially if you try to incorrectly suspend this belief and then all of a sudden you're watching a piece of 360 video. And by that, I mean, it's, it, you, you're aware that it's just the video playing around you. Um, but if you're careful not to mess that up, which is why we were so careful in, in you know, building up this language, right? Um, as long as you don't mess that up, you can keep that presence and you can maybe build on it if, if, you, if you do the right things. I, I love that reference to language. Like that, I, I really felt watching you guys iterate and, and a number of other VR makers that there was this intense learning going on to unearth or discover the unique language of VR. And so... I'm curious about how you felt like you were discovering the, the, the literally the tools. I don't mean the hardware tools, although that too, obviously you were building hardware and software tools, but I mean that the storytelling, the directorial tools to, to get to have more freedom. How did that work for you? What have you learned? <laughs> Uh, well, look, it's an, it's a huge question that could warrant a very, very long answer because we started exploring that a decade ago and we're still discovering it as, you know, today. So, and, and we're probably going to be discovering it for, honestly, for the rest of our careers. Um, you, what is interesting about virtual reality storytelling um, is that it's it's built on technologies that are transforming every six months, you know? And so the moment that you think you figured out something, then the platforms are evolving towards something and then suddenly it goes from linear to, you know, interactive and then the linear content needs to fit inside of an interactive platform, then interactive merge, merges into the metaverse. And, and so all of that is in constant flux and evolution, unlike cinema that had a, a relatively stable ride when you look at the sort of technological environment of cinema in the uh, 20th century, you know, it was relatively, relatively stable. Um, and I say that because, yes, there was an evolution from silent to, you know, uh, movies with sound and then from black and white to color. But fundamentally, the cinema that was practiced at the time of Charlie Chaplin is not fundamentally different than the cinema that is practiced, you know, almost 100 years later, while in virtual reality, a year means that the medium is 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 take like transformed to another stage to another stage and then to another stage and then to another stage but at the core of that is presence that's the sort of under underlying reality of this medium or the underlying power of this medium and that doesn't change that remains the sort of fundamental holy grail or force from which everything emanates for us you know and so um, that's how we cultivated that presence. And we, we sticked to that rule in, in a very almost rigid way in the sense that we, we tried to really, really, really apply that rule. It's funny because one of the things we did in almost every project, in fact, I can't think of any right now where we didn't do this, but we would position the camera uh, at sitting height in almost everything we ever, in every shot we, we ever did, uh, sitting height or lower in the case of Miyubi because Miyubi was a, a smaller toy robot. But this was really to mimic the physical position that the viewer would be in when they watched our content. So we, we would always, of course, uh, recommend people sit down if we were there with them. You know, when you're standing up, right, you have a very 
distinct sense of your height when you're standing up, and everyone has a different height. But when you sit down, no matter how high you, or, t- or how tall you are, uh, you might be sitting down on a tall chair, on a short chair, on a couch, on a whatever, and on the on the floor. You lose that sense of, uh, you know, I need to be at a specific height to be seeing this, right? And so almost everything we did was at sitting, you know, average sitting height or lower. And uh, the, the first time we that I could think of right now that that we 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 stopped doing that was when we were in space, where you're floating, right? And so that was one of the most liberating uh, aspects of shooting in space, where, where we could totally let go of that concept. Before we jump to space, because I definitely want to talk about your experience with the ISS, I'd love to talk about Traveling While Black, uh, which was a piece that I just found to be unbelievably moving. Myself and, and everyone that I showed it to ended up in tears in the VR headset. And I remember thinking this is the most mature uh, VR documentary filmmaking I've, I had, I've seen to date. I mean, I, I felt like all of those lessons that you had learned about what, how to make VR film or VR storytelling were being employed there in these incredibly subtle ways that, that let us forget about the camera or, or use the, the sense of presence and the ability to tell stories in VR in this in this way that just enhanced the power of it. You know, incredibly emotional and moving uh, content. I'll, I'd like you to tell our listeners about it. But I also just want to mention that it it really brought me back in a way to to that yurt and having and, and the 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 Nomad series where you would have us having a meal with with family, right? To then be transported to Benny's Chili Bowl and to sort of be sitting there in a booth and in a, in a space where again we would be sharing in theory sharing a meal, you know, and have that be this this place to have a kind of intimacy with people, whether it's family or it's it's a you know mother telling a story about the loss of her child uh, in, in Benny's Chili Bowl, and then doing it in this way in, in, with the presence that you have, have so cultivated through VR that made it all the more intimate and, and therefore all the more emotionally powerful. But you know, that even that film uh, was built around an idea, around a concept for presence. Initially, Roger Russ Williams um, came to us uh, with his team and they wanted to do a virtual reality experience that would explore the notion of the difficulty of traveling for African-American in the 50s, 60s, 70s and and explore if that situation has really changed today and try to compare the past and the present and they had that thought that they and that idea that they had developed for a film. Um, they had never done virtual reality, so they wanted us to help them adapt that idea into that format, that medium. And so, what we proposed, looking at you know researching the subject, looking at the work that they had done, was to try to find one location, one place, a single interior location, ideally that we could use as a time-traveling device, uh, a single location that would be able to embody, you know, uh, the, the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and that would still be an active place today, you know, that still exists and that people go into. And maybe they are aware of the history of that place, maybe they're not aware. Um, and uh, Roger mentioned Ben's Chili Ball in Washington, D.C. 
um, a restaurant that has been at the heart of the African-American uh, community in Washington, D.C. for many, many years, going all the way back to the civil rights. And, and that restaurant has played a very important role throughout you know, the last 70 years. We went there and we were looking for an idea. We were looking for a way to tell a story in that location. We did not know what that was at the time. When we went there, we saw um, those mirrors inside of the uh, restaurant. And we thought, oh, it could be interesting if everything happens while you are sitting at you know, a table and you have this very intimate setup and you hear some conversation between people. And when you look in the mirror, you see a representation of the exact same restaurant, but in the past, maybe 40 or 50 years in the past. Um, and, and that becomes, uh, a, in a way, a portal that literally transforms the whole environment. And now you're back in the past as the story continues. And we could make that interactive in an invisible way so that when you are experiencing the piece, depending on how you engage with the mirror or just you know, remaining in the space, the main space where you are, the story might take one direction or another, like visually, it could evolve and transform, um, which would make you feel even more connected to that environment and to that narrative. We really started to go into that idea and dig that idea that that place is alive, that place as a consciousness, that's, that place as a memory. And, and then everything started to kind of fall into place. And that's, that's this kind of dreamlike quality that, that allowed the, the, the emotion and, and the depth and the poetry of that experience to flow, I think. So, so as we go from basically you know, the, the simplest of storytelling to much more complicated, I mean, what you just described, Felix, is a, is a very elaborate a uh, set of metaphors and and construction to tell a, to tell a story. You evolved. You, know, you started to explore storytelling in different ways. But you know the most recent one, which which is truly out of this world, <laughs> is is the work you've been doing with NASA on the International Space Station. And again, I think it's a, a tribute to uh, the success that you've had that that you would be able to be the one chosen, if you will, to be a partner with, with NASA to create this kind of cinematic quality VR storytelling of life on the International Space Station. So just sort of briefly tell us how you got that and then the, the outline of what that project is. The idea of being able to take people off the planet in the presence of people who are off the planet and who are adapting to life off the planet, uh, who are prototypical of probably a future form that we will one day have if we significantly migrate away from this planet. Uh, it was just one of the most uh, fascinating prospects to us. You know, as we were making our way, you know, <laughs> building this studio, exploring the medium, there was always a thread that was out, that was running, put this together somehow, right? We, were, we, we actually had our first conversations with NASA, I believe in 2015, if, if 2016 at the latest, it was through, you know, concerted effort and, and, and pulling any, any string we could to, to make these conversations happen. 
And, uh, you know, sure enough, uh, they, after seeing what we were doing and, and, and uh, expressing what we wanted to do, even though it, it sounded improbable and, and incredibly ambitious to everyone involved, what ended up happening was we, we decided to take it one step at a time. And that led to the, the, the creation of the first few episodes of Space Explorers, which were shot on Earth. And we thought that was, you know, a great first step for many reasons. Uh, obviously, to get to know each other, you know, ourselves and, and, and NASA and not, you know, also get to understand what it means to collaborate with, with such an, an entity, right? And to start working with the astronauts as well, you know. The, and also what was great is that we would be able to take the audience on the journey to space, right? And, and tell the story of, you know, the first episode was, you know, what, is, what does it mean to become an astronaut, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it was a dream that we socialized at NASA over time, let's just say it this way. We, we ended up showing the first season of Space Explorers to thousands of people at NASA. And every time we would show uh, the episodes that had been shot on Earth, uh, mainly in the U.S. and in Russia as well, um, telling the story of astronauts and cosmonauts and the international collaboration and making viewer feel themselves like a, a crew member, like an astronaut training to go to space and, and trying to kind of, you know, build a narrative and, and share it, yes, with an audience, but also internally at NASA. Um, and that, that really helped us to talk to talk about what we wanted to do next. And every time we had an opportunity, we would mention that the second season, we wanted it to be set in space. And by that time, we had also done a lot of projects, uh, including effectively projects with two American presidents. And so I think the studio had a, a credibility that it could deliver on complicated projects inside of complicated environments, such as working with Secret Service, for instance. So we wanted to send a camera that would become a crew member, a camera that the astronauts would welcome on board as an additional person that is there, you know. And when they um, capture a scene, the camera is going to be placed as if it was someone else that is there. It would take the actual physical space of a person inside of a very, well, it's big, but at the same time, it's small because you have a lot of people living there, uh, you know, a spacecraft. So anyway, the project happened. Uh, we filmed it over two and a half years. At any time of the day, depending on the astronaut schedule, we would, uh, you know, be on console and connecting to space station and help, you know, support the operations in space. And very often we were preparing weeks ahead of time, um, you know, the documents that we would send to the astronauts explaining what uh, the creative objectives for a scene are where we would like the camera to be, but also giving them the freedom to change the camera position as long as it respects some of those ideas about the camera being a crew member and this idea of presence that we're trying to cultivate, um, and uh, giving guidelines. And then the astronauts on the day would actually follow the protocol. And sometimes what we had planned for would happen exactly had we had imagined it. But sometimes, you know, there were reasons why they just couldn't do what we wanted to do. So they would place the camera somewhere else. And sometimes they even shot scenes on their own without us being aware of it, you know, just moments that they decided to document. And, um, and it turned out that it was such a collaborative process that it was just, we were so grateful even today, like it, it was such an extraordinary experience, but that whole adventure, it's, it's a three year filming adventure and it, it ended up, it ended just a couple of weeks ago, you know? So um, it's, it's the end of a big chapter for, for us, you know? 
Well, I, I had the pleasure, obviously, through you of seeing some of that footage and being blown away by it. I mean, for one, just the opportunity to look in all directions when you're in, in microgravity, you know, every surface is, is in play. <laughs> and, and so it was, it's a remarkable opportunity to be able to film in, in the ISS because really looking everywhere is interesting. Like there's like the floors, there is no floor. You're like, everything is interesting because everything is, is an active surface. But, but more than that, I mean, I think this whole notion, we're getting to why presence is so important, right? Because it, not only does it give you a sense of being there, but it also can have that sort of life-altering effect of, mm-hmm. of what it means to experience something firsthand. And um, so having seen that, I, you know, I had the pleasure of knowing some of the folks at, at Facebook who, who run their live events. And uh, when they mentioned to me the, the interest in having some exciting climactic experience for the end of their Connect conference, which happened a, a few weeks ago, um, the first thing I thought of was to, was to pitch them on the idea that, that we all should collaborate uh, and, and put together this footage and, and experience of doing a, uh, a spacewalk, cinematic spacewalk from the International Space Station because I, I knew you guys were filming that and, and I just thought what could be better than to bring you know, maybe a very large public audience to, to be able to have that experience and, and ultimately with the hope of creating a little bit of what astronauts really talk about, which is that overview effect. Right to be able to be out in space, looking down on this, you know, precious blue marble, this this spaceship Earth, you know, that that is so delicate when you have that distance to look at it from from 250 miles above ground, which you just can't see from the perspective of, of being on the Earth, and and every almost every astronaut talks about that how how their perspective of the precariousness and preciousness and need to preserve our planet is from there and so so you know just being able to offer that in a, in a way through your your filming through your footage was kind of a bucket list experience for me too you know to be able to to collaborate with you guys and and with Facebook and be able to make that be part of their Facebook venues experience for for such a large audience uh, was an amazing collaboration. So thank you for for letting us do that with you, and uh, and our thanks to to Facebook or Meta to seeing the the power of of providing that to a, to a much larger audience. It was a super fun project for us all to collaborate on. Yeah, absolutely, and that that has been a great collaboration with you guys. Um, and uh, and I, I can't wait to share that footage and that experience with, you know, like uh, the, the, the rest of the world because not everybody saw that. Um, and not everybody, not everybody saw that in virtual reality as well. Um, and, uh, you know, that footage is going to be part of a show called The Infinite um, that we have produced in collaboration with Fi Studio. And The Infinite is basically... Um, a 6,000 square foot uh, virtual reality representation of the space station. And as a viewer, you embody an avatar and you can have up to 150 people walking at the same time inside of the life-size ISS. And as you walk in it, 
uh, you will discover inside and outside of the space station some floating orbs or floating hotspots. And using your avatar's body or hands, you can activate the hotspots, and that will launch a cinematic VR scene that has been filmed precisely from the vantage point where you are in, you know, in the virtual ISS. And when you get to the end of that you know, virtual reality experience, you are asked to sit in a chair. Um, and inside of that very comfortable chair, we will present to audiences an eight-minute version of the Spacewalk film. Um, and uh, the way the chair has been designed, it, it kind of shifts your gravity backward um, and that the way that the experience has been processed or created, it's going to literally make you feel as if you were uh, floating, basically, in space alongside the astronauts. Um, and all of that is going to be done in full virtual reality. So that the, the premiere of that specific part of the exhibit, uh, the spacewalk, um, is going to happen December 20th in Houston. Uh, it's going to be there for four months, this exhibit called The Infinite, and then it's going to, store, it's going to tour the United States. So I'm hoping that in the next four to five years, everybody, you know, in, in the U.S., living nearby one of the major cities gets an opportunity to go and experience this uh, because I think, it's, uh, I think it's something important to live, you know, and, and uh, we're, we're, we're excited to, to be able to provide that for audiences. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this journey of learning, this journey of, of discovery, um, and creation in a new medium where you're figuring it out as you go. I think there's a lot of, of, of insights perhaps for other kinds of storytellers who are taking on new technologies, taking on new, new challenges. What, what are some of the takeaways? Has this been just purely joyful? Have you had uh, some really bumpy you know, road along the way? Like what, Yeah, well... This specific piece, The Infinite, is our first released, I should say, interactive in the sense that it's real-time rendered, six degrees of freedom. We've been working and developing uh, our, our ideas around interaction and, and the, the you know, volumetric uh, embodiment for quite a few years. A lot of people would have liked us to would have liked for us to do this years ago in fact from the very beginning uh we had uh, a lot of pressure uh from our partners uh from the industry right whatever little industry there was to quickly start doing you know full volumetric interactive content uh, for a few reasons some of them market related some of them perception related some of them strategic uh, there was a, a moment there where cinematic virtual reality went kind of out of style. You know, that, that was a little uh, tough to deal with because we weren't resisting for the sake of it. We, we mentioned how careful we were in evolving, right, our, 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 our language or, or the way we, we told these stories. And interactivity is a, is a major step in that. It, it's very, very much a can of worms. So we spent a lot of time. We developed many projects some of them never saw the light of day, all of them except for the infinite so far. Uh, others are still in development and, and uh, so But we've been very careful about, about how we do this. And in the end, you get an, ex an experience that kind of puts it all together. That's been a, a huge learning uh, experience. I mean, the, the whole medium is a learning experience <laughs> all the time. Yeah, I mean, look, I think one, one big 
sort of a cliff that you need to jump into. I don't know if it's a good metaphor, but that like we had to kind of unlearn from a, a, an approach to cinema that is a little more about controlling the viewer every step of the way, you know, like controlling the viewer and and making all, the viewer always kind of anticipate what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. You know, a lot of cinema is about the next thing that's going to happen. A lot of films are built in that mindset that it's all about the next thing that's going to happen. And, and in, in virtual reality, you need to kind of let go of the next thing and focus on what's happening now, you know, and, and making sure that in the present moment, the viewer comes together with the experience. And, and so th there, there was a lot of unlearning and kind of relearning this core dialogue, this core dance uh, between between cr telling a story, creating an experience, and having an audience engaged, and I think that 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 learning has been difficult, but at the same time, it's very addictive in the sense because the more you think that way, the more you start thinking that way, the more you don't necessarily want to go back to traditional ways of telling stories, you know, because it makes the story you create or the, the material you create endlessly renewable. Do you see what I mean? Because it, it's it's Every time a, a, a viewer comes in, it kind of reanimates the experience and it comes back to life. So it's like, I don't know, it's this idea of like there's something, there's like an immortality because there's always, as long as there's a viewer coming into it, it comes back to life. And I would say that had we not done all of the things step by step that we did over those last 10 years, you know, going from like super pure, you know, moments that are just about presence one shot and then eventually breaking it down into like story beats and then evolving that eventually towards longer pieces and eventually towards interactivity. Had we not done all of that, we could not have done a show like The Infinite with confidence, you know. Um, and we, I don't think that we would have known how to lead that ship to destination. All I can say is that everything that is being designed by us as a studio, as creators, um, places the viewer right at the center. It's all back to this kind of core idea of presence and nurturing presence, but it kind of scales that up, you know, into, into layers of experiences and stories that, that kind of amplify the experience. Well, I think this is a beautiful place to end, and I appreciate so much the journey that you've been on and that you've brought me along on with you. <laughs> And I thought maybe just to end it, since since this is likely to be one of our last podcasts of the year, I would ask you if there were a few experiences that you've had, VR things that you've seen this year that really stood out for you. Are there a couple that you would want to share with, with our listeners as highlights? So there is one VR experience that I've seen this year that I thought was... Uh, very, very good, like very good uh, virtual reality storytelling. It's called The Book of Distance um, by an artist and filmmaker called Rendell Akita. He's a fellow Canadian. I was impressed how mature that piece was for somebody who, as far as I know, had not done VR before or maybe had done a piece or... It's interesting because that artist has done multiple installations, so he's been doing films but also other art installations, um, and it seems like somehow that that background, that diverse, in a way, background that is not just focused on cinema itself helped him into creating that amazing first major VR piece. Anyway, I was blown away by that. Um, another thing that I would encourage audiences to watch is not a VR experience, but 
is something that for me feels like a VR experience. It's a film called For All Mankind. Uh, it's a film that has been made, uh, I think, in 1989. Um, and it's built from footage from the Apollo era. So it's all about space exploration. And it's the, the story is told through voiceover narrations of astronauts. Um, and that piece was a huge inspiration into designing the approach that we ended up using for Space Explorers, the ISS experience, uh, in terms of tone, in terms of immersion, um, in terms of how it integrates the, the astronauts into the story and makes you feel one of them. Um, so it's one of those, in my perspective, it's one of those presence-driven films that has been made. Uh, so I would encourage people to watch that. And then, lastly, I would say, you know, there are a few filmmakers that, that, has been, that have been extremely influential for us, at least, and that I've always encouraged people to go and, and discover if they haven't discovered them yet. Uh, Ozu is an obvious one. Any film by Ozu is fantastic, but Tokyo Story is uh, probably the most iconic or easy to find one. Um, and then in more contemporary cinema, um, and still from Asia, there's Apikeptong Weresetakul. Uh, he's a Thai filmmaker, and he also makes uh, what I would call presence-driven films uh, that are highly poetic and experiential and has always been a big source of inspiration for us. And then Jia Jianke from China, um, his early films, including a movie called Platform, um, is, has also been extremely influential in our uh, understanding of what we were trying to do as virtual reality filmmakers when we started out. So th that would be my list. This is not VR, but, you know, the last few years, as we've been exploring interactivity, I've, you know, been, you know, really trying to find inspiration in interactive stuff. And, and the most of that stuff that's out there is games. There's this, you know, I've been <laughs> banging this drum for you. It's not new. But this to me is a masterpiece on the level of the greatest films, music, literature, uh, The Witness. The, the Witness by, by Jonathan Blow is, is really an incredible piece. It's masterfully crafted visually, conceptually, mechanically. Uh, every pixel, every interaction feels like it's there with a purpose. And uh, it, it's a meditative experience. You know, many people listening might have already played it. It's not new. I think it's been out for, since 2016. But if you haven't and you're at all interested in, in games or, or in just interactive design or storytelling, even though there's no story per se, there's a very profound mystery to this game. Next, I would say, this is not new either, but it's still current in that it's a platform, uh, VR chat. <laughs> VR chat and, and really, really uh, social... Uh, VR platforms at large, but VR chat is the one I've spent the most time in. My wife kind of dragged me into it. Like, uh, you know, it, it wasn't something that I found inherently attractive, but having spent some time in there, it's really a fascinating place to be. It's still very rough around the edges. It feels like the early days of the internet, but in volume, right? Uh, very creative community, you know, and, and by creative, I mean, the people are building worlds, they're building avatars, they're programming the worlds to do things and to behave in ways that, you know, there's almost no limit. You can basically, you know, build in unity and import in, in, in uh, VR chat with, with some limitations, but relatively a lot of freedom. 
and then lastly, this this just came out. This just came out a few days ago, actually. Is the Kid Amnesiac exhibition? So it's a virtual uh, exhibition. It's not actually in virtual reality, actually. It, 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 at least not yet. It, it's a uh, it's a two dimension. Well, it's three D, but you play it on your screen, and um, it's a basically. Um, made in, in commemoration of the 20th anniversary of Kid A and Amnesiac, the Radiohead album. So I'm a, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. fan. It's essentially an uh, a, a, a impossible museum within which uh, you uh, explore the soundscapes. This is all, you know, they, they said they didn't create anything for this. They just brought in music and, and stems and tracks from the sessions, from the recording sessions, and all the artwork. They created tons and tons and tons of artwork. Stanley Donwood, who works has been working with the band forever, uh, you know, has all these wild paintings and characters and landscapes, and they were all brought in and to create this, this museum that is just completely wonderful to explore uh, with headphones. And, uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. If you're a fan, if you're not, you could probably still... Really, really, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, experiment. Uh, I really highly recommend. Thank you. Well, I can't wait to try it. I just want to thank you both so much for your presence here on our podcast today and just to say how excited I am to see what comes from your unlearning and your learning um, as you move forward with your with your craft. And um, thank you for the for the great work that you've done and will do and for your friendship. And it's just a pleasure to know you both. So thanks again for being here today. Yeah, well, thanks for having us and uh, for inviting us. I think it was a, a really great opportunity to talk with you and, and share some thoughts back and forth. So thanks a lot for the opportunity, Charlie. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's been a while since we actually sat down and, and had a had a drink uh, and chatted. So this was the closest thing to that in a, in a very long time. So very much appreciate that. My sincere thanks to Felix and Paul for joining me on the show today. You can learn more about them and the infinite and find a full transcript of our conversation by visiting the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you'd take a moment to give us a review. FOSS also produces a monthly newsletter that is informative and well worth a read. It's free, so check it out along with a wealth of other great content by visiting our website at fost.org. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you again in the new year for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Mm-hmm.